The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, December 16th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Barack Obama held his last press conference of 2016 today. The last press conference, before this, the last press conference, was in November, mid-November. He held press conferences close together, one domestically, one when traveling. Here is a clip. In fact, it's the very first word said by Donald Trump in his last press conference. So it's been 235 days since crooked Hillary Clinton has had a press conference. And you as reporters who give her all of these glowing reports should ask yourselves why. And I'll tell you why. Because despite the nice platitudes... She's been a mess. That press conference where Trump crooked a finger toward crooked Hillary for not giving a press conference in quite a while, that took place 142 days ago. Trump canceled a press conference that was to be held yesterday where he said he would discuss how he will intertwine or not his personal business with the business of the presidency. Now, at that press conference 142 days ago, And then, if you weren't clear about who he wanted to do what to whom, he said this. I will tell you this. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. Let's see if that happens. That'll be next. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And that pretty much wound up being the entire content of President Obama's press conference, where he essentially said the Russians were listening, or at least acted exactly as Donald Trump wished they did. On the show today, there's an old gospel song called, I soon will be done with the troubles of this world. I fear that the exact opposite is happening. We'll have on a policy expert to talk about all the scrapes that a president could get in if a president would be the type not to avoid scrapes. Here's Dan DeLuce of Foreign Policy. The U.S. is the world's lone superpower, but in the minds of many Americans who themselves feel powerless, the U.S. doesn't seem so powerful. Donald Trump has given mixed signals on his opinion of U.S. power and its use. He says he thinks that some of our failed wars were a mistake. He says that he said so at the time, though that is contradicted by contemporaneous interviews. But he also favors John Bolton as Undersecretary of State. Bolton, a chief advocate of the war in Iraq and a major proponent of the idea that it would be a relatively simple task to overthrow Saddam Hussein. Everyone knows the president is the commander-in-chief, but I doubt that most Americans realize the extent to which he is what I call the diffuser-in-chief. There are so many incidents which could go off the rails, but don't because the president or those serving under him are specifically trying to de-escalate. There are buzz NATO jets over Norway. There are sailors detained in Iran. There's always the possibility for war. All the time, it seems to me, it has been up to the president to avoid those wars. What will the next one do? Joining me now to ponder these questions is Dan DeLuce. He's foreign policy's chief national security correspondent. He was, uh, I don't have to read his whole resume, but let's just say this, reported from Tehran, whereas Sarajevo bureau chief during the wars in Yugoslavia, six years at the Pentagon. Hello, Dan. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm, I'm well. So 
it does seem to me that there is the possibility for the U.S. to get pulled into a conflict a lot more than most people realize. Yes, exactly. Uh, and of course, sometimes we don't find these things out until years later. Uh, you know, there was an incident when Carter was president that no one knew about at the time where U.S. military thought that the United States was under a nuclear attack from the Soviet Union. And uh, the national security advisor at the time, Brzezinski, got a call in the middle of the night, literally 3 a.m., and he's told that you have minutes to act. There are missiles heading to the United States. He waited uh, for one more call back before he was going to wake up the president to tell him that, you know, the end was was coming. And then he was told by the military, oh, sorry, uh, someone put the wrong uh, disc in and that was a drill. And that, that actually, we, we now realize we're not under attack. Um, and it, it's, wow. it's, it's, it's laughable all these years later, but it's also really scary. And that's right. You have the U.S. Navy is... Um, in every uh, ocean in the world uh, as we speak, and you never know when uh, there might be a really uncomfortable incident with a, a Chinese ship passing way too closely, uh, possibly colliding. Um, at the beginning of, the, of George W. Bush's administration, everyone forgets this, before 9-11, a, uh, a, a Chinese plane collided into a U.S. spy plane mm -hmm. uh, over the Western Pacific, and it was it was a it was a crisis. It was a full blown crisis. Yes, yeah, that was uh, his got, first pre eleven test. And China kept the plane and kind of stripped it of all the good stuff, of all the spy stuff, and then returned it to us. That's right. And there's all these other kind of near misses we don't hear about. Right. So this is this is what's interesting to me. The Iranian detention of those sailors, we only knew about that because Iran, in contravention with international norms and treaties, uh, put out video of the blindfolded sailors. But I'm willing to guess that A, most countries don't do that, and B, perhaps things like that happen more than we know. That's right. There are things that we just don't hear about, and historians don't end up getting to actually find out about them until things are declassified years and years later. I mean, there's still there's things about the Cuban Missile Crisis we only found out a few years ago. So, yeah, and in that case, with those sailors uh, getting detained, you know, this was a case where something went wrong. Uh, yes, we have this very professional military that's very well trained and extremely well funded, but mistakes happen. And they got lost. Uh, their navigation gear wasn't the best, and the communication with their superiors was lacking. Uh, there were a whole series, a comedy of errors. And next thing you know, uh, these uh, sailors and these very small riverine boats that are really built to go along the coast, uh, and they're in the Persian Gulf, and it's very tricky. Territorial waters are very, very tricky. And they didn't realize it, and they strayed into Iranian waters. And the Iranians uh, decided to make hay of it and uh, detained them and, as you say, violated international law uh, and, and maritime law and how they acted. And they got them down on their knees and they videotaped it and it was all very humiliating. But uh, it did not escalate into a total disaster. And you can argue that that was because there was kind of this pressure valve there, a kind of communication channel between the Secretary of State, Kerry, and the Iranian's foreign minister, Iran's foreign minister, Zarif, who they've gotten to know each other and they have some rapport because they spent months negotiating the Iran nuclear deal. And whatever the merits of that deal, and there's a lot of critics, they do have this kind of dialogue. They can pick up the phone and talk to each other. And that has not existed because Iran and the U.S. still actually don't have formal official diplomatic relations. But in this case, it helped diffuse the whole thing fairly quickly. Now, I remember at the time, uh, all the Republicans, and this happened a day or two before the debate, went on and on about how humiliating it was. And it was only because of the weakness of President Obama that they would take such a step trying to one-up each other and try to show how tough they were and what kind of retribution would happen under a, you know, at the time, a Cruz, a Rubio, a Trump presidency. However, 
Perhaps that's what you say if you're the out party, you know, campaigning on a ticket of I am strong and he is weak. What might a president do other than de-escalate the situation? Well, I mean, there's the the Russian uh, principle uh, theory, which is the opposite, which is escalate to de-escalate. Mm-hmm. So the next time an Iranian fast boat, uh, a few Iranian speedboats come up real close to a, to a U.S. Uh, destroyer in the Strait of Hormuz and uh, point their weapons uh, at the U.S. ship, maybe the U.S. ship would fire a warning shot. Uh, it's something they don't do usually. Of course, that's a risk, and, and, and you never know how your adversary is going to react to what you're doing, and, and, and they may not uh, perceive what you're doing the way you hope they perceive it, and that's how wars start. In uh, the case of the next time Iranian sailors get detained and Trump is president, there will not be a secretary of state who has a, a rapport or some kind of a familiarity with the Iranian foreign minister. But speaking of Russia, and I mentioned uh, their buzzing NATO jets in the Baltics, and they keep doing this. Um, are these some American jets? You know, how close are they coming? If your strategy as president is to escalate, you know, to uh, to flare up like uh, a predator and bare your teeth, if you have jet your jets already being buzzed doesn't that just guarantee a shooting war you're taking a very big risk and for what really because in the end a lot of what the russians are doing is is uh, is playing a game buzzing close to a u.s ship or to a nato fighter jet or u.s fighter jet in the end is it really worth risking a shooting war over over what's kind of childish behavior you could argue um a bigger issue uh though is you know when, for example, Russia invades another country, as it did in Ukraine, uh, then what should the U.S. response be? And that has been a debate. And, uh, you know, Obama chose a kind of middle course, which is very Obama-like. Uh, he did not want to arm the Ukrainian army. He thought that was too big of a risk. That could go wrong, that maybe the wrong people would get a hold of the weapons or maybe it would, it would, it would trigger uh, more escalation from Russia. So instead, Obama and the Europeans decided to impose sanctions on Russia. That was kind of a middle course to try to pressure them and penalize them for what, what they felt was a really provocative, uh, really dangerous thing to do, which is flout international law and invade another sovereign country. Now there's speculation, what's Trump going to do? Is he going to cut a deal and maybe even offer to soften those sanctions against Russia in return for something? We don't know what. Uh, big question mark. But, um, you know, talking tough is one thing. And when you're actually in the Oval Office, uh, there are many consequences and you cannot assume how the other guy is going to perceive what you're doing. How much, what about China? How much actual U.S. military engagement is there with China in a place like the South, South China Sea or elsewhere? I think there's a lot more than we know about or see. Uh, there were some incidents uh, several years ago that got very, got very uncomfortable, got very serious. Uh, where there was a near collisions uh, where the U.S. accused the Chinese ships there of operating in a kind of a dangerous way, also with aircraft. At the moment, they kind of shadow each other. Uh, for, a long, for years now, of course, across the Pacific, you have uh, both sides shadowing each other, looking and snooping around looking for each other's submarines. Okay, so that's always been happening, uh, as it did in the Cold War. But now in the South China Sea, you have U.S. ships and an aircraft, P-8 uh, surveillance aircraft in the air. And there are times when they're passing fairly close. And there are times when the Chinese will say, you know, please leave the area. These are Chinese territorial waters. And of course, the U.S. doesn't 
uh, and most of the world doesn't accept uh, what Chinese claims are their are their waters that those are those are international waters under you know maritime law. But the Chinese have these very expansionist territorial claims in that area. So there, there plenty could happen there. And it, and if tr- the next administration wanted to, they could tell Pacific Command that oversees all that to say, okay, let's run more patrols in that area. They're called freedom of navigation operations, mm-hmm. where you're asserting the U.S. Uh, view that these are international waters and we can sail our ships through there. And we could do that more aggressively and we could move U.S. ships near, very close to these artificial islands the Chinese have dredged up and built on reefs all over that area as part of their big territorial claims. I get the sense that Iran, for instance, would love to provoke, or at least some hardliners in Iran would love to provoke some sort of military conflict with the United States. China, on the other hand, I get the sense that they want their sphere of influence, but they want to make money. So they perhaps use their military to gain economics. Other countries might use economic leverage to get into a fight. What's your sense of how willing China would be to engage in actual use of force if the United States president is all too willing? Anything's possible. Uh, You can't rule it out. I think your reading is exactly right. China is not out for uh, military confrontation with the United States. They actually do buy into the idea of trade. They do want to trade with the U.S. and the rest of the world, and they don't want the U.S. to get in their way. They have complained that the U.S. is trying to hold them back, that the old power, uh, the old superpower is standing in the way of the rising power in China. But it could all change if they felt that their core interests were being threatened. Nationalism runs very strong in China. And there are times when the Chinese regime actually has trouble and struggles to control it. Yeah. Even though the state propaganda feeds it, uh, it's hard to manage and it's hard to calibrate. Yeah. They, a war would be much more popular with the Chinese populace than the American populace. That's right. You could see something happening in the East China Sea. That's another place something could happen that no one actually would want or seek in the first place. So China and Japan are arguing over some rocks in the East China Sea, and they both claim it. And it's a very important territory claim to each side, even though to an outsider, you'd think, why we? Why would one argue over some rocks? Yeah, these in the uninhabited sea even... islands with uh, two different names that don't really confer exactly. too much except their perception of prestige. Yeah. That's right. There's no oil there. You, there's nobody living there. There's no water source. They're uninhabitable. But it is tense. And the U.S. has a defense treaty with Japan. And we are obliged to come to their defense. So what if tomorrow something goes wrong and some young Japanese or Chinese officer makes the wrong call, panics, pulls the trigger, something happens? Uh, next thing you know, uh, Japan is asking if we'll come to their defense because they've got uh, the Chinese Navy breathing down their necks and they've just sunk a Japanese ship. That may sound uh, outlandish, but it, it, it's not. It's, ac- it's actually possible. And, and so, yes, the Chinese military is stronger than it used to be. It's more confident of its power than it used to be. And it feels very strongly about the Western Pacific. You're not going to see the Chinese going to war with the U.S. in Africa or the Middle East, but they view that as their backyard and they think we should stay out. Well, that's my big question. No matter what uh, Trump states are his policy views, and there's contradiction there, but he has said, you know, he's not an interventionist. I don't get the impression he's a neocon. But could the personal failings, the, the tendency to get drawn into something, are there 
protections against a president who flies off the handle f- from getting us into a you know conflict that a week later he regrets? I don't want to be you know melodramatic, but I, our system is going to be tested. Perhaps you know there were the, the the executive branch has expanded dramatically. We are we are a long way from where we were when this country was founded, and there is uh, the the president has enormous power in foreign policy. Congress has chosen over decades not to exercise oversight and to check presidential power very often. Uh, it did start happening during Vietnam, at, uh, the second latter, latter part of that conflict. But in the end, if the president wants to use military force, he can do it. And it takes some time for congressional check to uh, you know click in and, and start uh, depriving the executive branch of the funds required to bankroll whatever military action you want to take. But what, what would be the other checks on that? Well, uh, there's informal checks. There's the people inside the administration. There's, there's uh, Mattis. There are other people in the National Security Council. Uh, there's the Secretary of State now, if uh, Exxon Rex Tillerson gets confirmed. Bob Gates and other people say this guy is, is, uh, is prudent and, and not rash. And so that's one check. Uh, the other check is Congress uh, in an informal way, right? They, 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 they do have these discussions with the leadership. And you've already seen some Republican senators already drawing a line a little bit on some issues, on Russia, uh, on, uh, on the, the Russian hacking of the election. Uh, Nixon was known to make some decisions that were driven by his own thin-skinned nature and his vindictive side. And then there was uh, the, the, the accusations that Bill Clinton purposely uh, – went for military action uh, and bombing in Iraq uh, to distract from uh, his scandal. The human factor uh, cannot be discounted. Dan, I have to say this was very compelling. If the national security briefs are half as interesting as this, I would recommend that Donald Trump pay attention to him. Uh, well, okay. I hope I, I hope it didn't depress everyone out there. Uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. No, now we're uh, more attuned. Dan DeLuce is Foreign Policy's Chief National Security Correspondent. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're coming up on a new year and we're coming up on a new presidency. So I just wanted to tell you, the listeners, that the gist is up to the challenge. In fact, we're going to take on these times head on. I think we're going to reposition ourselves with some splashy headlines, some arresting graphics. And with this in mind, we've even been banking a few promos. So you know you'll be covered no matter what develops in 2017 and beyond. Uh, Mike, uh can you do a few more of those? This is just if you can't get into the studio. We want to run these in the feed the night before. Oh, okay. You want me to do that right now to bank, bank a few? Yeah, exactly. I, I think we have the script uh, on your desk. There. Yep, I got it. All right, here we go. Here we go. Trump, China. No, Mike, you know the new feel we're going for? You got to grab the audience. Trump, China. Give me a bit more of like a like a scary voice. Like, you know, the announcer for ABC This Week, like that guy? Starting right now on This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Democracy hacked? Did Russia want Trump in the White House? The latest details on the secret CIA findings. Ah, that guy. Okay, I think I got it. I think I know what you're going for. Here we go. Showdown in the South China Seas. Trump belligerent. Xi Jinping not backing down. Q 
Could this be war? Okay, that's great, Mike. Uh, could you do the next one? Sure, sure. Showdown in the South China Seas. The first shooting war with China since the Korean War. Will Trump learn from history? Joining us on the panel, former Secretary of State Colin Powell. Joining us on the panel, former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, Chuck Hagel, Leon Panetta, Ashton Carter, former MASH cast member Jamie Farr. Okay, Mike, let's take the next one. Showdown in the South China Seas, predictions of a quick victory. Okay, next. Showdown in the South China Seas. The war with China, how long will it drag on? The wisdom of fighting a country with 1.6 billion people. And why was Ivanka on Chinese QVC selling jewelry? And why were Eric and Don Jr. doubling their stake in a Shanghai apartment complex? Do they know something we don't? Trump economic advisor Lawrence Kudlow is on to say we're assholes for just asking the question. Can I say that, that we're assholes? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, in the future, stuff like that is going to be fine. Okay, sure. Here we go. The war with China, rebranding General So's chicken as General Patton chicken. The war with China, President Trump's popularity hits a new high as Americans rally round the flag. Okay, Mike, we have a couple more of these. Uh, these are for different wars. Okay, let's see. Okay. Uh, the president and the dear leader. Will Kim Jong-un's one-star Yelp review of the Trump grill mean war? Mean a war with Nigeria. War with Burkina Faso. War with Canada. War with Narnia. Is that, is that even a real place? Well, Mike, we believe he's going to insist that it is. Okay. All right. I'm going to keep going. Let's see. Uh, where was I? All right. War with Cuba. War with Iran. War with North Korea. War with North Dakota. War with North Carolina. Some of these seem pretty far-fetched, Chris. Well, we have reason to believe he's going to be going reverse alphabetically with the Norths. Okay. So. Okay. The president and the chancellor. Will Angela Merkel retaliate after Trump's comments about her face? The president and the chancellor. Will Donald Trump's Twitter feud with Seahawks defensive back Cam Chancellor distract him from his war with China? The president and the king. What will Trump's tirade against Seattle Mariner pitcher Felix Hernandez mean for U.S.-Venezuelan relations? An historic start. Mariners pitcher Felix Hernandez takes the mound. Does he regret setting off this war? A constitutional challenge. Is Felix Hernandez serious about running for president or just worried about losing three miles an hour off his fastball? Felix Hernandez, not even 35, not born in America, Will the emergency Trump-stitution allow him to run? All right, home stretch, Mike. All right, here we go. Coming up, from king to president, our incoming leader swears he'll do away with the designated hitter. Okay, I think we've, I think we've really gone pretty far out there into the future there, Chris. Uh, I think we have one more, Mike. All right. All and right. we're pretty sure about this one. Okay, let's see. 
President Felix Hernandez vows good relations with Narnia. Is this a change-up, or is he bringing the heat? I I guess we got four more years of those puns. All right, how was that? Now we have to do it again, but with David Ortiz. (laughs) And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube's favorite chairperson of the National Endowment for the Arts was Roger L. Stevens, the first chairperson. Just producer Mary Wilson's favorite chairperson of the NEA was Livingston Ludlow Biddle Jr., Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, can't believe that Livingston Ludlow Biddle Jr. wasn't Chris Berube's favorite chairperson of the NEA. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, can scarcely believe that the same seat once filled by Livingston Ludlow Biddle Jr. may now be filled by Sly Stallone. The gist. Noting that a week ago, in the credits, we mentioned a former cabinet official, former labor secretary, William Ussery Jr., and then two days after that, he died. We are not wishing the same fate on Sly Stallone. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.